I'll be reading from Rays of the One Light. Did God create the universe or become it? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. The Gospel of St. John, Chapter 1, contains a passage that explains the essential truth that creation is a process of becoming. The universe is not separate from God the Creator, but a part of Him, even as our own dream creations during sleep are figments of our consciousness. God's is the life, God's the reality. Not a melody could be composed, not a poem written, were the melody and the poem not already there, simply waiting to be expressed. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Ego-directed desire is like static. It distorts the radioed message of infinity. But the pristine impulse from the divine, undistorted by limitation and delusion, is the life that gives rise to all that is. As the seventh chapter of the Bhagavad Gita states, I am the fluidity of water. I am the silver light of the moon and the golden light of the sun. I am the Om chanted in all the Vedas, the cosmic sound moving as if, as if soundlessly through the ether. I am the manliness of men. I am the good sweet smell of the moist earth. I am the luminescence of fire, the sustaining life of all living creatures. I am self-offering in those who would expand their little lives into cosmic life. O Arjuna, know me as the eternal seed of all creatures. In the perceptive, I am their perception. In the great, I am their greatness. In the glorious, it is I who am their glory. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh, 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 For those that don't know who we are, my name is Nayaswami Pranaba, and this is Nayaswami Parvati. I'd like to read to you from Paramahansa Yogananda's book of Sacred Prayer Demands. Veils surround me, Father, hiding thee from me. I love the dainty colored veils of roses and daisies, the shining veils of clouds of burning gold, the dark star-decked shawl of the night. But how long wilt thou remain hidden behind all these veils? I love them because they hint at your presence, yet still they hide thee. I long to see as thou art behind all this cover of veils. Very sweet. When I was a young boy, uh, I think I was about seven years old, I had this very strong impression that the summer holiday was at least as long as the school year. And it was to my shocking surprise when someone said it wasn't. 
that it was only two months and the school year was 10 months long. But it was interesting because I fully lived that reality that those two months were at least as long. And why? Because of the freedom of no schedule as a young boy. That I mean, when I grew up, and for some of us this is the way that when I had breakfast with my parents, that was the last I saw them until dinner time. I was just out in the world. And so there was no time continuum for me. It was just there. There was no, sometimes I didn't bother with lunch. I'd just grab something and go out. But, and my parents actually never asked what I was doing. And so it helped me to feel, in a very real sense, the freedom from time and to live that. So it was a puzzle when I was told otherwise. And of course, then quickly I adjusted and still made the best of those two months through the remaining school years. But it's an interesting example of this dilemma that faces us of how we perceive and misperceive the world. Now, certainly from my perspective as that seven-year-old, whatever that perception of those summer holidays, it was good. You know, it really didn't matter that it didn't fit into the mindset of the world around me. But that doesn't always work that way. As children, we can get our way with that to some degree. But this idea that the veils of delusion in maya, that's the Sanskrit word, are there. This may seem like a superfluous little example, but maya and delusion have those veils on us all the time in every situation. And it's how we really get to the heart of something and perceive its truth that's really what our life is about. I mean, even in little things, for instance, that first chant we did together, Lord, I am thine, which is a chant written by Swami Kriyananda. He wrote it back in 1982. That um, I remember hearing at one point that someone thought the words were, Lord, I am dying. <laughs> but not a bad interpretation. Uh, when you think about the ego dying, certainly that's a valid thing. So it's not as if these things are really wrong or right, um, but they may just take us suddenly off at the beginning, not much off, but suddenly then the tangent goes off and it's way off at some point. So this emphasis in today's reading is simply trying to say, let's go to the heart of who we are and the heart of what creation is. And that's God. That's the divine. Now, it's an interesting topic, the title of this, Did God Create the Universe or Become It? You know, for some of us, it seems like a minor philosophical point. You know, interesting, but probably not going to give it a whole lot of focus. But you know, in truth, it actually is very, very important because it can set the direction and tone of our lives to perceive greater truth, or we can be led off to other things. Why? It's sort of like saying this, that there is the same difference between spiritualizing your life and living a spiritual life. Not a whole lot of difference if you're looking at it casually. But indeed, it's a dramatic shift of where our energy, our consciousness, and where we can give our devotion to. But at first, 
may not appear to be that way. It may seem pretty minor, pretty superficial. The point is, in both of those examples of either God creating the universe or becoming it, is that when we think of God creating the universe, creating, creating the universe, we tend to have the mindset that it's very separate from us, that God's very separate from us. God is this deity in the heavens producing all of this. When we orient our awareness and our focus and our energy and consciousness into the understanding that God becomes everything, then we can feel more fully that that's our own reality, that we ourselves are really one and and complete in that oneness in God. We just need to understand it. We, we need to come to that deeper experience. But it's there at the heart of who we are. And it's a very different way to orient our percep- perception of life around us. I mean, very much, it, it will shift. So when things go right, when things go wrong, we're able to shift where our awareness can be, that our expectations aren't so much in the world fulfilling anything, but letting the world reflect God's presence. But those veils that I talked about and the veils that Master Yogananda talked about in this uh, prayer from Whispers from Eternity are constant. Until we become liberated, we will have veils. And sometimes they will seem like concrete walls around us. And sometimes they'll seem like a, a flimsy, transparent silk cloth but they still will fool us and take us into maya, into delusion. There's this wonderful ancient legend um, that many of us have heard many, many times, Um, but it's a wonderful example of tuning into this, how maya delusion works uh, underhandedly. That it's the story about uh, the great ancient sage Narda, who has such a deep awareness of the divine through Vishnu, the incarnation of the divine through Vishnu. And at one point, Vishnu comes to him, not only in vision, but really comes to him, and says, Narda, you are such a dedicated and sincere devotee of mine. Is there a boon that I can grant you? And um, Narda thinks, and he says, Yes, Lord. Why is it, I, I, I don't understand it from my perspective, why is it that when people feel the touch of your presence that they can never be fooled by maya and its grip on them? And Vishnu didn't answer right away. And he said, let's go for a walk, Narda. And they walk and they enter into this desert area where there's hot sand. And after a bit of walking, they're, they're realizing they're thirsty and they want to have some water. And they see a wisp of smoke uh, over the hill, the horizon and realize there's a village over there. And Vishnu sweetly says to Narda, please, could you go get us some water at the village? And Narda goes. And the first door he comes to in this little village, this beautiful young maiden opens the door. And Narda feels this ancient connection of attraction that it isn't just in that lifetime. And he goes in and suddenly they're talking and engaged and he's welcomed by the parents and Suddenly, they're in a relationship, and he gets married to this young maiden. And after a year, they have a child, and he forms a business, and then he has another child. And after 12 years, he's just, they have a third child that's a baby, and 
suddenly this torrential flood comes down from the hills above and floods the entire village. And so they, Narda picks up his two older children by the hands and puts the baby straddled on his shoulder and the wife is there. But the surge is very powerful. And Narda stumbles and the baby falls from the shoulders. And what he naturally responds to is letting go of the other two children to grab the baby. And the two children get swept away and the baby gets swept away. And the wife then, feeling so much despondency in seeing this, lets herself go. And Narda himself says, of what avail is to live? Let me go. And then he's rushed away in this surge. And then he wakes up. And he first thinks that he's on the muddy banks of the river. And then he realizes, oh, this is, I'm on a little mound of sand. And he hears this voice, Narda. And he, he's thinking, that's a familiar voice. And then he hears it again, Narda, where have you gone? I left you to go give, you were supposed to give, go get water 30 minutes ago, and where have you been? But it reflects the sweetness of this play of the Maya, of Maya within our lives. We think innocently, I'm fine. I'm just going to go ahead and do this and do that. And what happens is that, Narda, where are you? What's happening? And we, we, we've suddenly lost that energy of that. Remember, Narda starts off the story really powerfully engaged in Vishnu to the point where he, Vishnu comes to him. It's no small thing. It's not like you know, a little glimpse of light in meditation. Obviously, he's very real in that connection with the Lord. So that can happen at that point, and that's what the story is pointing out to us. For us just to not assume that the world is playing with us is a dangerous thing. But this emphasis in the reading today is saying there's a way out, and that's to go to the heart, again, of who we are and what this world is about, and that's God. If we offer ourselves into that experience, then the divine will come to us. Not only come to us, we come to the divine. So we have that experience there. Because when you, when you look at what the Bhagavad Gita is saying, what Krishna is saying here in these words, it's, you could say it's just a nice general description in, in various aspects of what God is. The fluidity of waters, uh, the darkness, um, the sweet, moist earth, um, all these things. But, in most scriptures, there's this underlying subtlety of what this means for us in a, in a very real way. Not just a description, not just a, a beautiful description of God in these ways, but really a key to unlock, to unfold what that means in terms of our practical experience in life. And so Krishna talks about the fluidity of waters. And what he's really saying here in an esoteric way is that if we tune into the flow of that divine presence, we're able to really meet life, even, in we, even if we misperceive it, that in that light uh, of the experience, when we're flowing with that light, we're flowing with that experience, just like water that may come across a big boulder in a stream path, it's not going to worry about that boulder. But a boulder is a challenge for the water, but it simply says, I'm going to flow past it. And so it finds the way around that boulder. 
And that boulder becomes part of that river at that point. And in that fluidity, that's how we can approach life. That God isn't just some distant deity that we pray and allot so much time in meditation and prayer to. But really that we're in that flow constantly of drawing that, not only the inspiration from the divine, but that direct experience of that being ours as well. And the idea of light and darkness, of just giving us that understanding that when we go towards the light, when we offer ourselves into the light, even when the darkness comes at its most powerful way, then that light will come just like a small candle in a very dark, large room will give that light. I've just finished reading the, the last book that Swami Kriyananda wrote, which is called Love Perfected Life Divine. Sometimes I get the title right and sometimes I don't. But Love Perfected Life Divine, which is a novel, a fiction book that he wrote based on one of the books that Paramahansa Yogananda actually read called The Life Everlasting by Marie Corelli. But in the last, I'm not going to ruin the story because there's no punchline to the book, but uh, in the last chapters, the main character, this woman, goes through a series of tests. And seemingly, they're, they're tests that are from the external world around her. You know, voices outside of her room that are um, questioning, you know, the spiritual leader in this monastery that she's staying at. Um, you know, the, the friction between uh, her true self, her little self, her protective self, her contractive self, and, and that questioning force of darkness through a shadow. All these tests are there. And they seem to her, and the way you read the book certainly, they're externalized. They're very powerful as events that are happening, very real to her. But at the end of the test, what's revealed is that these tests were all always in her own awareness. And that the spiritual leaders of this monastery to give her this challenge were creating these, these tests in her awareness, in her consciousness. But I thought it was such a beautiful, enlivened story way of, of really coming to that understanding that all the tests we face are really simply always within our own selves. And even that struggle of running that marathon where those last few miles seem like they're just pain, they're really just a reflection of what's going on in our own awareness, in our consciousness. And when we open ourselves to that experience, we know we can get there. And not even get there, we know we are there already. I remember many years ago we used to have... um, what we call now joyathons to fundraise for Ananda. And we used to have them up in Chico, uh, north of here in Northern California, in a park called Bidwell Park, which is a really beautiful setting. It had a, a 20 mile, no, a six mile loop. And uh, for both runners and cyclists, it was a great experience. And I remember um, the first time we went there that uh, I had ridden, I think, something like 57 miles the year before and thought that was pretty impressive. My ego was pretty bold at that time. But I thought I'm going to do at least twice that. I'm going to do 120 miles. Now, I didn't get a chance to really um, prepare, at least on a bicycle. Every morning I would, this is in San Francisco, where we had the ashram house for Ananda, I would coast down those hills in San Francisco, ride a little bit by the 
marina down by the bay and come up. And usually I would walk the bicycle up. And, um, but I energized more every day. I did Yogananda's energization exercises every day, um, you know, three or four times, and really focused on that was my training, that I was drawing that energy, that experience of myself living that energy, not just doing them to find the energy, but to be the energy. And sure enough, and this is an interesting uh, experience, that I had to go there very early because I knew it would take me a long time, you know, 120 miles. Um, I figured maybe 10, 12 miles an hour. So 12 miles an hour is still 10 hours. Well, marathons, even slow marathon runners, aren't going to take even half that time. So I got up in the dark and went out at 6 o'clock before the setup of all the tables and all that and started pedaling. Um, at a certain point, somewhere around 100 miles, the body sort of responded in a way that I thought would happen, but indeed came out with full force, complete resistance. Enough is enough. Stop. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Because it sort of came out of nowhere. I was just cycling along, and suddenly there it was, a real, powerful, very real, physical, and mental resistance. And I thought, I know the teachings. Let me see, if nothing else, the application. Whether I finished 120 miles wasn't really my focal point at that point. It was simply to test the teachings in a very real way. And in energization, we emphasize the tension with our will and willingness and the relaxation feeling that. And I thought, that's the key. Pedal motion by pedal motion. Tension, relaxation. Tension, relaxation. Well, it was like it just superseded the body's wanting to have the attention placed on it. It wasn't that the tension went away. I, I mean, I, I can tell you afterwards I felt that. But it superseded that tension being the reality of forcing the issue. It, it was really the misperception that was forcing itself on me. And what I was tuning into was the real perception of what was going on through tuning into that energy. Now we know the energy is infinite. How can I then not tune into that? So I thought even if it's just going for another hundred yards, I'm going to emphasize this experience of going past the misperception of Maya. And I just kept going. And it was a very, very nice ride. Most other people were passing me at that time. But I was going into a whole different experience of just saying, I'm enjoying this. This is really why I'm here. And indeed, uh, I finished 120 miles. And uh, it was remarkable what happened at that time. My body completely seized up. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, if you overexercise, you have lactic acid in the body. And it's a toxin in your muscles that it just contracts. And you're basic, you know, I was sort of walking <laughs> like this. And so, um, but then I had Sunday service to give the following morning. And I thought, this is interesting. So, and I didn't get back to San Francisco until oh, probably 11 or so at night. And I thought, I need to energize. Now, of course, that didn't make any impression on my sane mind, but I thought, I'm going to do this anyways. And it wasn't as if I could energize outwardly the way that I'm normally used to, because my body was really stiff. 
but I could feel that softening energy coming in, soft but strong. It wasn't as if it was just a weak uh, passage of energy, but it was a soft energy because that's what I was tuning into. And then I had just a very sweet, short, sort of 12, 14 and out Kriya meditation and um, went to bed. And then the next morning, I was still physically pretty much in stiffness, but it was just then a time to move on to something else. And giving service was, it was a good experience. It was a fine experience. But this idea that we can feel ourselves in God rather than thinking God come to us, both are valid. But if you're always coming from God, please come to me. There's going to be those gaps when your conscious and subconscious mind feels it isn't there. That's why if we can shift our orientation to feeling I am with God in this moment, always, we may forget that. I mean, that's one of the, the challenges that we face is forgetfulness, that we miss the point and forget. But the more that we remind ourselves, the more that we live in that experience, you know, really be there when the going is going easy for you, meditate more, bring your heart's devotion more into it, use prayer rather than as a formula, but as a, an expression of your heart, do the techniques, not so much just to get them done so that you can say, I've done my time, but be alive in the moment by moment experience of those things. It doesn't always happen every day or every time we do that. But the more we consistently remind ourselves, let's do it in this way, let's feel it in this way, then those veils of maya, of delusion, start to just drift off, be pushed away. And we know then in our heart of hearts, we have that presence. And in that presence, then we're going to be challenged even more so. You know, and, but let those challenges be a wave of a positive support to go deeper and deeper. You know, see them that way. Even if they come and they hit you hard and you're toppled over, it's a powerful experience negatively for you. At that point even, even if you've been crushed in the beginning of that challenge, say this isn't the end. This is where, this is the time, this is the moment where I'm really going to make the choice and open up to that experience of the divine. When we're in that, that experience, then we know more fully why we're here and that the love of God is our love in our hearts. Let's take a moment for meditation. 